Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Carrie Gillen. I'm a host on New Books and Language, part of the New Books Network. I'm also the co-host of the Vocal Fries podcast. Today I have Dr. Chelsea McCracken, who is an assistant professor of interdisciplinary arts and science at Dixie State University. She conducts research both on language documentation and on homeschooling and educational policy for the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. And today I have her on to talk about her grammar of, is it Bellop? That's how I typically say it in English is Bellop, but in Bellop you would say Mbelep. Ah, <laughs> I was pretty sure it was not going to be correct in the actual language. Okay, but that's good to know that it's English appropriate. Um, yeah, so welcome. Thank you. So why did you decide to write um, a grammar on any language and then why this language in particular? Um, so from the very first time that I ever learned about that linguistics existed, which was probably at some point in college. Um, I And even before that, I've always been really interested in endangered and minority languages. And um, as soon as I found out the linguistics existed, I knew that I knew that I wanted to work on a language that um, had not been um, fully documented yet or um, or in, on an endangered or minority language. And um, I also I kind of knew even before applying to grad school that what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a grammar. Um, it to me it seems like the best opportunities to write grammars are really in graduate school. Um, is it such an all-consuming process? It's hard to imagine doing that while also teaching at the same time. Um, I'm amazed at my <laughs> my faculty members, other faculty members who've done that. Um, and um, so I I went to grad school knowing that what I wanted to do was write a grammar, and I tried to design my my uh, educational program so that I would be best prepared to be able to do that. Cool. And why did you choose uh, Bellup in particular? So I chose Bellup. Um, I, my undergrad degree was in French and math. And so I was a, a fluent speaker of French. And um, so I, I also sort of realized that I wanted to be able to use French as a contact language. And um, so I was uh, looking around and exploring um, like French colony uh, uh, countries that had been colonized by the French. And so French would be a potential contact language. Um, And one of my um, professors knew someone who knew someone who worked in New Caledonia. Um, So I contacted her. That's Isabelle Bril. and uh, she worked on the language Nelemoa Nihumak, um, spoken in uh, Kumak and Pum in New Caledonia, which is quite nearby to Bellup. Um, so I, I contacted her and was like, hey, do you know of any languages that don't have any documentation on them, like nearby languages or ones that you know of in New Caledonia? And she was like, hey, Bella, Bella, no one has gone to Bella before. Um, the only um, really trained linguist that had been there before w- was uh, um, uh, Marist Priest. And he had had some training in ethnography um, and linguistics, but not a lot. And as far as I know... Oops, sorry. <laughs> um as far as I know, he's the only uh, the only person with any training in linguistics that had been to Bella before. Oh wow! That yeah, so it was def- definitely needed needed to have a linguist come in. That's uh, yeah, and it and it ended up being um, extremely fortuitous because I didn't have a lot of contact with um, Bellama or 
people of Bella with Bellama before I um, before I showed up there. Um, but I did send them a letter and like sh- a few days before I actually arrived there, I got a, a, a letter back um, saying that they had actually made a request like multiple years prior to have an in-country linguist come and help them with their orthography development. Um, and no one had ever come. And so um, they've been like, you know, they wanted a linguist, but no one had materialized. And so they were like really excited that I had just like appeared out of nowhere and <laughs> been available to do that project, help them with that project. So it was just a very fortuitous um, meeting between the two of us. So can you describe uh, New New Caledonia for us? Yes. So New Caledonia is, I think, um, it's sort of described as like a a one of a kind type of colonial situation. Um, I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not sure that I fully understand what its political status is with respect to France. But um, it was colonized by France in the late 1800s. Um, and, um, Bellop actually, I would say Bellop probably got some of the worst stuff that happened in the, the process of colonization happened in Bellop. Um, so that's where they stuck the leper colony. Um, and so they moved everybody out of Bellop onto the mainland, um, to make way for their leper colony, which resulted in many Bellama becoming infected with leprosy and it was pretty terrible. Um, one of my, one of the, um, texts that I ended up recording was a beautiful song and poem written by, a uh, um, a musician, a Bellama musician about the horror of the leper colony and the entire population being displaced because of that. Um, and, uh, Bellop, so, um, New Caledonia is in the South Pacific. Um, the people, the indigenous people of New Caledonia um, are sometimes described as a, a mix of Polynesian and Melanesian um, cultural elements. Um, currently, um, well, there are about 30 some um, indigenous languages. Basically, each village in New Caledonia um, has its own language. New Caledonia is about the size of like Massachusetts. So it's like, you know, every city in Massachusetts had its own language basically. Um, and, um, there are two, uh, fratries. So like, um, traditionally people would marry and someone of the other fratry. Um, and, uh, Today, the indigenous populations um, maintain control of their of their tribu, which is uh, like a reservation, like their tribal land. So they still um, have customary control over their land. Um, but at various points, much like in, say, the United States, um, they were forbidden from leaving their tribal lands. Um, and um, so... In the south of New Caledonia, which is where most of the population is centered, that's where the capital Noumea is, um, the the southern um, indigenous languages of New Caledonia are, many of them are no longer spoken, um, but the ones that remain are severely endangered. Um, in the north, and Bellop is the most extreme north that you can get, um, Customary traditions are much more highly preserved, and people still live in the customary way. I would say in Bellop, I would say customary traditions are the most preserved of anywhere in New Caledonia. Um, so, and why is that? Why is there this north-south divide? Um, so, I think it has to do with where the population is centered. Like the all the French institutions are in the south. Um, you know, the university and. Um, all of the, most of the colonists, most of the tourism um, is centered in the South. And then um, the North is just very rural. It's not very developed. And um, 
I think because so and Bellup is especially remote because it is an island separated from the rest of New Caledonia. Um, and so in order to get to Bellup, getting to Bellup is very difficult. There is a passenger catamaran, which goes, I think, twice a week, and it periodically breaks down for months at a time. <laughs> there is there is an industrial barge, which goes, I think, once a week, and it also periodically breaks down for long periods of time. <laughs> and there is um, a commercial flight in a little tiny, like, plane. Um, and they go twice a week, I think, but only if there's good weather. <laughs> and right. so it's just, it's really hard to get to Bellop and it's kind of hard to leave. And so I think um, just that di- that travel difficulty is part of what makes um, the, the culture so strongly preserved. Um, unlike, I think in most places in New Caledonia, um, young children are growing up speaking French as like primarily French. Um, but in Bellup, that is not the case. Kids don't really become conversational in French until they're in the middle of elementary school. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. There, that's why that's the fight is there. So why, why was Bellup chosen or Bellama or whatever is chosen as the leper colony? I don't know why. Um, if I had to guess, I would say because it was really far from where the capital was, but I, mm-hmm. I don't actually know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what language you used to conduct your field work in, but you've already answered that. You, it was French. What was it like speaking French uh, with the Bellup speakers? Um, so I, I started out speaking French as my contact language, um, but as soon as I could, I tried to do monolingual elicitation as much as possible. Um, so I, I did three field trips. Um, the first one was like two months and then four months and then three months. And then, so I always went, um, in the winter to avoid hurricane season. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, um, in between there, I was like furiously working on my grammar and I would, I'd had all these like texts and stories and stuff that I'd recorded and I was transcribing them and glossing them and pulling out examples and analyzing them. So I was listening to them over and over and over. So each time I went back, I would be like way better at speaking bell up than I had been the previous time. And by the third field trip, I was able to be like, I like to say I was like, you know, 200 level or 2000 level. Um, Like I was not by any means a great speaker, but I could more or less conduct my elicitations and recording and, be conversational mostly in Bellop. Um, when um, when I left, so um, there's this amazing cultural practice, all-consuming cultural practice called La Coutume in New Caledonia, um, and it involves typically oratory. Um, and I was able to give like a speech in Bellop at my like going away dinner. Um, wow. It wasn't great. It wasn't a great speech. <laughs> it was like, what you know, <laughs> soph- sophomore level final exam kind of speech. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's still great. Yeah, that was it was really fun. And um, I found that the. Um, well, first of all, like I'm not a native speaker of French either. So I had a lot of like um, sort of translation like. Someone would tell me a bellop word and then they'd tell me the French word for it and be like, I don't know what that French word is. It's some weird, obscure, like, I don't know, animal or something. And so then I have to go up, look up the French word and then be able to figure out what the bellop word was for it. And um, so I'm sure there's some some amount of like playing telephone kind of errors been that have been introduced into the data that way. But um I found that's always the case. Right. (laughs) The more that I was able to speak Bellup, the better, um, the better everything went. Um, Because I was able to like, you know, hear a stream of speech and to be able to pick out the Bellup words that I hadn't heard before and to be able to ask what those words meant. Um, And um, I'd say also um, the way that uh, Bellama currently speak Bellup um, involves quite a lot of code switching, or I would characterize it actually as stable diglossia. Um, and so 
Can you explain many... what that is? So um, when people are speaking about um, formal, um, formal, informal contexts related to um, French institutions, such as education, Catholicism, government, um, technology, that kind of stuff, they'll typically speak more French. And when they are talking uh, in contexts that um, relate to um, stuff about their families, about um, develop cultural practices, um, and um, traditional institutions like the chefferie, the the chief um, the chieftainship and um, traditional governance structures, they'll speak more bellop. And um, but every day there's sort of a mix between the two. Um, and so I, I actually found that um, I would slip in when I didn't know a bellop word, I would slip in the French word, but with all the bellop morphology attached, which is how Bellama typically code switch. And when I did that, people would be even more impressed by my Bellop speaking ability. Because they'd be like, wow, not only can you speak Bellop, but you can code switch right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a skill for sure. <laughs> it's really cool. So you sort of told told us all this already, but how long did this process take you? So you had these um, month, a couple months, few months long uh, fieldwork sessions, but uh, what about the rest of the project? So the the rest of the project in between the field work is I was um, back in the States. I was at um, at Rice and I think I was even taking a couple of classes, um, but I was primarily working on my dissertation. And so that was, um, so I had like six, seven months or so between field trips and I spent think one year I wrote like four chapters and then the next year I wrote four chapters or something like that and then the following year I massively revised all the chapters that I'd already written um but I was doing like I don't know like a chapter a month or something it was really intensively writing yeah that's pretty quick actually so what are some interesting things about this language that you found this is a super cool language. Um, it 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 also it kind of turned out to be um, perfect for me because my interests lie in morphosyntax, and that's where all the cool stuff is in Bellop. So <laughs> I was very um, very tickled by that. Um, Maybe explain what morphosyntax is because not everyone's going to know. So some languages have a lot more complexity in the number of sounds that they have and the distinction between the sounds. Um, Bellop doesn't have a huge number of sounds. Um, I think it's what, only like 18 consonants and five vowels, depending on how you count, um, which is a pretty sm like small number. Some languages have way more sounds than that. And so... Um, it wasn't super hard to learn to make most of the sounds. I mean, I'm not certainly not perfect at it, but, um, you know, I didn't have to like learn to distinguish between different tones or distinguish between sounds that I had never heard of before, um, never heard before. Um, and um, most of the complexity in Bellup comes from the way that words are constructed and the way that words um are, or w parts of words are combined to make larger words or combined to make um, phrases and clauses and sentences. And um, one of the, one of the interesting things about um, Bellup is that um, the definition of what is a word in Bellup is very, um, it's difficult to pin down. So there's a lot of languages um in the region, actually, that don't even have a word for word. Bellop doesn't have a word for word. It has, it only um, has a word for name. Um, so to ask what the word is for something, you say, what's his name? Um, which is, so like the most word-like things are like nouns um, or, or a verb. And like people can tell you what's the name of that. Um, 
But when you get into anything sort of more grammatical than that, like um, a word for like I or you or me or he or she, um, words for like um, past tense like did or will um, or um, words for directions like up or down, all of those things in Bellop are not, um, they're not words per se they're more i call them formatives in my grammar but um they're sort of like parts of words incomplete words and um in order to create a full sentence you have to combine a bunch of these sort of incomplete words together and it creates this um uh sort of larger conglomeration of partial words um there's a, there's a, quite a lot of clitics in Bellop, which are sort of things that have, uh, like, are partway between an affix and a word. Um, and uh, and there's also this this very interesting thing of where you like in a lot of in a lot of languages you try to break things out down into um, sort of constituents like. Um, a set of words or sounds that you can sort of say together as an intonation unit like they like if you stop in the middle people would be confused but if you say the whole thing it's like a full complete utterance and um the interesting thing in bellop is that um constituency is hard to determine because of all these little word parts like a thing that might be a full um, complete sentence, um, you might not be able to um, break it down further than that into like individual words. Um, there's like a disconnect between um, the types of things that you can say by themselves and the types of things that go together grammatically. Um, so like I have a I have a part in my grammar where I break down this sentence into um, phonological words. So that's words that can be said on their own and then grammatical words. So words, words or part words that group together. And there's basically no one to one correspondence between those things. Um, so that completely makes sense why Bellop wouldn't have a word for word because what our conception is of a word is a thing that you can say by itself and it has like a conventionalized meaning and in Bellop those things don't line up right it's interesting because so I've worked a lot on um what are called polysynthetic languages languages that have very complex structures but basically one word can be an entire sentence but we but the still like the what what counts as a word is I mean sometimes it's confusing but it's not as confusing as as what sound, sounds like for Bellop for sure. Yeah, and, and like um I I tried various techniques to try to get people to tell me what their sense of like what a word was. I'd be like so if you missed sort of the last half of what someone said, how would you say, you know, can you repeat that word right and and Mm -hmm. they'd be like oh i would just say can you repeat that portion of what you just said (laughs) it's like (laughs) you can't really divide it into words in the way that say english does that's really interesting so what do you think this says about like language in general or even you know about english wordhood is there anything that we can say about what words really are um so I think I think really what it says is that um, we have to recognize that what we think of as a word isn't universal. Um, right. That these that the qualities that we think of that go along with wordhood um, that they that they are not always like that they just happen to occur together in our idea of words that they are not intrinsically linked to one another. Um, and that in languages like Bellop, those different qualities that we associate with wordhood um, can operate independently of one another. Mm-hmm. So interesting. That was actually the favorite, my favorite part of the of your grammar. It's just like the, uh, how complicated wordhood is, and um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it must have been yeah. it must have 
difficult to unpack all of that. Yeah. If you go and look at the grammars of um, some of the closely related languages in northern New Caledonia, you find that um, people are seeing the same sorts of things, these these little partial partial word things. And um, people just like don't really know how to interpret them. It's like some people will categorize them all as individual words. And then the language is sort of categorized as very um, isolating, like um, Mm. one word per, um, you know, one meaning per word. And then other people will categorize them all as affixes. And so it's like very agglutinating um, characterization of the language. And um, it's, it's really coming from the fact that like the, the analytical framework that we have of dealing with this of words just doesn't really map well onto the languages of Northern New Caledonia. Right. Yeah. And so maybe there's something missing from our theory to begin with. Yeah. Uh, What about, so I noticed also there was um, an interesting pattern of noun classes. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, so there's quite a lot of languages in the Pacific Rim area that categorize noun classes based on um, based on possession. So um, Bellop has, um, I'd say, I think four noun classes, right? And then the way that those noun classes are are characterized is whether or not they can participate in one of two possessive constructions. So in order to say, like, my hand or my sister or my dog or my house, um, a noun can either um, be... um, dependently possessed or um, inalienably possessed, meaning that um, there's no way to separate the possessor from the thing that they possess. I mean, you could cut it off, but it would still kind of be theirs. Like, my hand belongs to me. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Even if you cut it off, it's still my hand, right? So in order to, to say hand, you can't say it without saying who the possessor is. There's no sort of generic word for hand. Even the generic word for hand, er, or an, means someone's hand, his hand or her hand or their hand. Um, You can't just say hand. Um, And then there's another form of possession, sort of the, the alienable possession or the independent possession, where it's the type of object or the type of thing that can be passed around from person to person. Like it might be, um, I don't know, a phone or a basket. Um, although baskets typically are all, um, are dependently possessed also. But um, <laughs> it's hard to think of uh, maybe an animal or a plant or something like that. Um, although if a plant is the type of plant that you might plant in your yard, then it participates in dependent possession. So the types of um, the types of objects that participate in this independent possession are um, ones that, well, it's often used for like Western like imports of objects. Um, but the types of objects that you wouldn't um, you wouldn't typically think of as having an owner. Um, so some nouns can only um, you can only say the noun if you say who the possessor is. Um, some nouns you can they have a uh, they have an unpossessed form that's like basket. So basket is tolam. You could talk about just a generic basket, but anytime it has a possessor, you'd have to um, you'd have to use the dependent possession form. So tolambang would be my basket, but there's no way to say the basket of someone else in a in the in the um, independent possession form. Um, and then there are some nouns where they have, um, they can be possessed both dependently and independently. So um, home or uh, village um, can be possessed in these two different ways. So you could say puimuang when you're talking about my home, but um, uh, when you're talking about like the village of Ono, you'd say puimuang li Ono. And so it, it's like this, 
the word for home or village can be dependently possessed when it's referring to this more like like the thing that is inseparable from me um whereas it can be independently possessed when it's referring to a possessor like a name that could change hmm, um interesting. and then there's then there's the fourth class of nouns which is ones that can only be participate in this independent construction so they can only um they don't have a form um that indicates that they can be um dependently possessed cool it's really interesting and complicated <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so most nouns well many nouns will have multiple forms like base forms depending on who their possessor is um, right. So, like, a, a, the base word for a noun will be different depending on who it's possessed by. Wow, that's so fascinating. So, oh, are there any other interesting features of Balab? Um, Well, I think all the features of it are very interesting. <laughs> but um, um, I think one of the other um, sort of... Uh, something that might be meaningful to the community of linguists is that Bellop doesn't really have complement clauses. Um, and uh, this is complement clauses are something, so a clause uh, appearing inside as another clause um, as an argument of a clause. And um, this is something that some schools of thought and linguistics um, consider to be sort of an essential element of human language. Um, and Bella doesn't really have it. Um, in order to put, um, in order to denote the meaning that, um, that many languages typically use complement clauses for. So they Complement clauses are typically used for something where um, something that is seen, something that is believed or thought like, I think that blah, or I saw that my neighbor was arriving, or I believe that the sky is blue. Each one of those is like um, sort of a person um, conceptualizing something as a conceptualizing an idea as a, a noun kind of a thing. Um but Bellop doesn't do that. Bellop would say instead, I think and the sky is blue. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so formally, in terms of the words that are being used, it's no different from just a um, conjunctive clause, like something and something else. There's right. like six or seven different ways to say and that may be an exaggeration it may be five um <laughs> still, still quite a few ways to say and and so each one of these ways to say and also has um a, a meaning when it's used with um what we'd typically think of as complement clauses in other languages um so there's one word for and that's used after verbs of um perceiving and there's another one that's used um, sort of in the types of situations where you might see a subjunctive in romance languages. Um, but each one of those words only means and. And there's no distinction between the clause that it follow that follows it and just a regular finite clause. Hmm. Really interesting. And yeah, somewhat unusual. Definitely somewhat unusual. Hmm. So what... Uh, let's say someone has decided that they want to follow in your footsteps and write a grammar. Where would you tell them to look for a language to document? Um, well, I think that um, to the best of my knowledge, New Guinea is, uh, Papua New Guinea is one of the most linguistically diverse places and uh, has had relatively little documentation work done there. Um, I think there's, I think there's quite a few places um, in Oceania where the, the documentation of the languages has not, um, 
there's lots of gaps, right, of languages that um, maybe there's been a small survey of them. Maybe there's a little bit of of um, phonological or grammatical, like basic word order type knowledge, um, but no one has ever spent, you know, a lot of time intensively digging into that language and describing its structures. And uh, I mean, of course, there's many other places in the world that are in the same boat. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, definitely. But uh, but I'm most familiar, obviously, with with um, Oceania. And um, I think that um, I think that a lot of um, a lot of these languages are out there, and we maybe we maybe know these languages exist, but no one has taken the time to like really analyze them fully. Right. And what do you think the main reason is that these languages have not been fully documented? Um, I mean, I think a lot of reasons, um, sort of <laughs> systematic colonial oppression being one of them. Um, but I think also just, um, so I, I'm, um, I think this has advanced quite a lot from when I was writing my grammar 10 years ago, but, um, my feeling at the time was that, um, a lot of linguistics programs, um, were, um, were focused a lot on sort of analyzing languages that we already know a lot about and, um, and that there's, um, that there wasn't, that people trying to seek out and find new information from languages that we don't already know a lot about, um, that there, that there wasn't a lot of impetus for that, um, at least in the U.S. Um, and I think, I think as more and more people sort of realize that it's become more of a, um, of a trend that more, more and more linguists are seeing the value in analyzing languages that we don't already know a ton about um and that like those languages are going to really um sort of reveal that a lot of things that we thought were language universals and universals about humans and human minds and human societies are really not that the that those are just that those are just sort of accidents of the languages that, that we've already happened to analyze um mm -hmm. right i was just going to ask you that so why why do these languages matter but maybe you can answer that anyway so why does yeah why does it matter that we document these languages um so there there's so many there's so many reasons why it matters but i would say first and foremost um, the reason why it matters is that these languages are important to the people who speak them. And um, that um, a, your language, the languages you grow up in your family speaking and hearing and all of your traditional stories, all of your traditional knowledge, all of your cultural practices are bound up in your language. And... Um, that's not to say that you can't continue those cultural practices um, in a different language, but um, but the people who speak these languages find them to be valuable, and I think it's um, for those of us who have never. Um, had to look very far for any piece of media that we wanted written in our own first language. Um, for those of us who, you know, maybe read a bunch of children's books in our native language and went to school in our native language and met our potential future spouse in our native language and, um, you know, get to talk to people in our native language on the bus and at the grocery store every day. Um, it can be hard to recognize how incredibly meaningful and important it is to be able to 
speak your own native language and to participate in the cultural practices that are embedded in that language and that 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 language developed out of um and so i have a i have a beautiful foreword in my book from one of my um one of my consultants philippe tanuin um who is the i would say he is the 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 person in bellup who has spent the most time um trying to catalog and document um his language and um his his forward i asked him to record a forward for my grammar about um sort of his message to people you know several generations down the line who might be looking at this grammar or trying to think about learning the language and um his message was just so beautiful and poignant and he's like you know this is this is the language of your ancestors you know all of those people who have gone before you and like this language connects you with them mm-hmm. and um yeah i would say that's that's the most important reason for for why it's important to study these languages that's really beautiful <laughs> um yeah this has been really great is there any like last message you want to leave for the listeners if there's is there something really important about the language bellop or the people who speak it that you haven't already talked about um so i'd really like to talk about la coutume if okay if yes. that's okay um sure. so um it, it's la coutume is um an embedded set of cultural practices, cultural and linguistic practices that is found throughout New Caledonia. And um, it is, um, it's so, to me, La Coutume was probably the most challenging aspect of my fieldwork, even though it wasn't specifically linguistic um, in nature. And um, that's because, La Coutume is essentially an economic system, like a non-market-based economic system that is also um, created and reinforced by linguistic oratory. And um, the way that it the way that it functions is um, anytime you are you are having any sort of personal interaction with some, like um, anytime you're asking permission to visit somewhere, um, going to someone's house, asking them for a favor, um, apologizing for something, sort of acknowledging a social relationship. Um, there is a, a gift giving process involved. Um, so the, the, um, the closest that we get in the U.S. to this is like a birthday party kind of a thing, a birthday gift. Um, but the gift giving in New Caledonia and in Bellop specifically is just so pervasive. It is like gift giving is the basis of the economic system. And so these gifts sort of create and reinforce relationships between people the gifts themselves, as Belma will tell you, the gifts themselves is not important. The gift is just a gesture. What is important is the words that you speak over the gift mm-hmm. that are um, that are sort of creating and reinforcing um, the relationship. And um, so uh, the the like. This, it's basically a speech genre. In the speech genre of, of Kutum, um, it has like certain parts, certain oratorical parts. Like you, um, there's, a, there's a certain um, sort of bodily posture that you're supposed to assume and a, a way that your, your voice is supposed to sound when you're doing a Kutum. Um, and... Um, you know, there'll be an intro and then there'll be sort of the, the meaty part of what you're trying to say. And then there'll be a conclusion and then your, your interlocutor has to respond in a certain way. Um, and this sort of speech practice that's embedded in the economic system, um, 
was something that I had to learn uh, imperfectly, certainly. Um, but in order to like, in order to seem like, um, basically like in order to have relationships with people in Bellop the way that, um, that they understand relationships, I had to, um, learn this, this, um, gift giving system and this oratorical system. How successful do you feel that you were at that? I'm not, not super successful. There's still a bunch of stuff that I really, it's so complex. Um, and it's also, um, at least in public, it's primarily practiced by men. Uh Um, so there was a bit, uh, it's also practiced sort of in private by women. Um, but there was a bit of a, like gender disconnect between, um, what I, what I was trying to do and the types of speech that I was supposed to give in that, in that speech genre. Um, but I certainly, um, I became really familiar with this completely novel way of conducting social relationships. And that was, um, I think even more than the actual language that was um, the most sort of mind blowing part of my field work. Right. You know, at first it's, you sort of reminded me a little bit of what happens in North America with many indigenous um, communities here that I'm uh, familiar with, but the more you described it, the more I was like, no, this is, this is a very different kind of thing. I, I'm very fascinated. Um, but it, it does sound very difficult to navigate for people <laughs> people like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Thank you for describing that. Yeah. Um, do you have any plans to go back? I do. It's very vague, though, at this point. So right now I'm preparing. Um, I finally got some copies of my grammar in my hands. <laughs> I'm preparing to send them to the Belma, um, as I, I promised I would. I don't think they're going to find them super useful because they're written in English. Most Belma don't speak English. Right. But um, but at least they'll have something, some sort of tangible evidence that I wasn't just shining them on the whole time. Um <laughs> And the language committee who I worked closely with um, helping them sort of develop an orthography system, which was really challenging because of the word thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you don't know where, if words aren't really a thing, it's really hard to figure out where to put the spaces between words. Um, So I, I worked with them and what they really wanted um, was a dictionary. And so I, that I made that part of my, project is I um, I sort of have promised them that I'm going to make them a dictionary. Um, now that the grammar's done, I can sort of start that project in earnest. Um, and so hopefully at some future time, who knows how long from now, I'll have a dictionary and I can go present that. My thought was that I would go and present that in person. That's um, a really good plan. It's really nice. Um, so the yeah, so they're not going to be able to read the English parts, but what about the Bella parts? Are, uh, do they read in their language? Um, so the, there had been a lot of work on sort of um, grassroots work on trying to develop a writing system before I got there, and that's why they wanted a linguist to come and help them. Mm-hmm. They, they had already developed um, an alphabet in, I think, the late 90s. And so, um, and this is primarily the teachers at the primary school, Um because they are the ones like these are kids who are speaking Bellop as their first language. They're entering primary school only speaking Bellop. And um, these teachers are trying to teach them literacy and stuff. Um, They're trying to teach them literacy in their first language, but it's really hard to do that when you don't have a standardized orthography. Right. Yeah. Um, But the teachers developed an alphabet and um, most of the um, like classroom posters and stuff are handmade by them and written in Bellop language. Um, Other 
other instances of indigenous writing that I've seen is people will write up song lyrics and like at a public event, if everyone's going to be singing a song, sort of like a like a songbook kind of a thing, they'll have the song lyrics so everyone can remember which verse they're on. Mm-hmm. Um, and people will text to each other in Bellup. Um, and sort of anytime people are doing um, like this is back to the diglossia situation again like when people are doing cultural related activities um, family and, and cultural stuff um, they often have cause to write and they will do so in in Bellop without any sort of standardization because that doesn't exist um, so my hope is that um being able to see how i've how i've written the bellop examples in my grammar will at least be somewhat of a help towards that yeah towards the standardization um before i left i did give them like you know we sort of co-developed these are the some of the rules that we're going to use for the um for the orthography for the where to write the spaces and stuff um and so before i left i gave them like you know here's here's a couple pages of rules that we've developed together and then um hopefully seeing a bunch of examples in the grammar will also be helpful in some way towards that okay so they'll be able to read at least some of it which is helpful not yeah not fully helpful but helpful is there any um thought about maybe translating it into french yeah i'd really like to get it translated into french um i don't think that i can do that myself the it's it's best to have (laughs) <laughs> someone it was well, best to have someone who's a native speaker of french yeah. i yes. think translate it into french um so i i i have some plans to find a um some sort of a grant to pay a translator oh, cool to well, translate can... it into french but if you've got <laughs> if you or any of your listeners have ideas about grants that would be good for that i'd love to hear about them <laughs> that's a good question i don't have any thoughts on that because i haven't had to translate anything like that before um but yeah if anyone knows definitely let us know (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for this conversation it was so interesting i feel like i learned so much yeah i'd already learned a lot just looking like reading through your grammar but talking about it it's so much richer (laughs) yeah and thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you and you know geek out a bit about (laughs) language and belma people (laughs) I love geeking out about language. It's a little bit, it's a little bit much for most people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you.